Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi, Bill. Good morning. How are you? So, I want to thank you for allowing me to have the week off last Sunday. I had a wonderful, wonderful time away. Um, My son and his wife own what they refer to as a cabin. It is not a cabin. It's bigger than that. uh, On Lake LBJ. And uh, so... My son picked Sherry and me up on Thursday morning in his car and chauffeured us. We did not have oh to God. drive all the way over there. Of course, he knows the way by heart. And um, we arrived and just relaxed. And then he took us all around the hill country. We went on two different days to two different wineries. Wonderful. And that was really, a that was fun to do that and mm-hmm. encounter the people that we encountered. And then he took us to this church, uh, which I sent you a photograph of, called yes. Smoking, Smoking for Jesus. And I is it a barbecue that was a, church or, or, a, or a marijuana church? Like, which one is it? <laughs> it's a, these people were Katrina refugees. And they own barbecue restaurants. Okay. So So they have a barbecue restaurant in Marble Falls. And I got to tell you, he directed us, he, my son, Douglas, directed us to a piece on the web to read about this church and their ministry. They have a high school. They have a day school. They have a place for transitional living to help people get off the streets. They really have a wonderful ministry. And I just, I thought there was some sort of disconnect for me between the really socially active energy that they have in the, in the community and, and in their religious organization and the title of the church, Smoking for Mm -hmm. Jesus. I just (laughs) thought that was, that was something, but we had a, we went for hikes in the woods, um, Drove all around, went to Lano and went to antique shops, and is it a wonderful, relaxing time? Yeah. And yeah. I, I completed doing uh, something on a book, which we could talk about um, at some point while I was there as part of my daily practice. But it was it was wonderful, and when we drove back on Sunday and were able to both watch and hear you and your guests. Um, and I, I, I got to say several things about that. One, the technology that makes it possible to do that is just mind-boggling, right? Indeed. But the guest that you had, wow. Yeah, he was so guy. He's so smart and so... Um, he has a um, uh, what I would call a, um, a lot of realistic hope. Yeah, for sure. You know, he's he's in this work every day um, and sees both the very real devastation and effects 
of climate change. One of one of the things he said that was I had never heard before was that the life expectancy between those who live in spaces where the outdoors are accessible, that have cleaner air, that have more trees, and those who do not is 20 years different. That just really stunned me. And, you know, he does have this immense, immense hope in the human spirit and in the ability to affect change, which also means, and because he's a dear friend of mine, I think I can say this pretty honestly about him. The disappointments are big too. You know, when we, when we experience hope and then we experience heartbreak, I read something the other day about how this world can break our hearts in so many ways and how it can also lift us up in so many ways. And I think the work that he's in definitely reveals those extremes. Mm -hmm. You know, in Taoism, hope and fear are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And the Taoists the, the say that you should not get into either one of them to stay in the right. moment. That's right. So. There was something um, really beautiful, um, a different something that I read as, I, as, as I'm also trying to kind of puddle, muddle through my dissertation proposal, et cetera. Um, hope emerges from darkness. Mm -hmm. That without experiencing hopelessness, we wouldn't know how to experience hope. And you're right, mm -hmm. we can't get stuck in either one. Being too hopeful can be a sort of spiritual bypass. Being hopeless can deny us our gratitude, grace, and joy. But Of course, this is a great time in the liturgical year to be talking about this, being Advent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have a practice during Advent that's different during the rest of the time of the year? I used to. Um, I, I, you know, when my children were growing up, we did um, uh, Advent uh, calendars and that sort of thing. I think now that what I would say is that my practice around Advent is uh, really involved in the life of the church, the, the liturgies, and they really ramp up. Uh, week after next, I don't even want to think about how many worship services mm -hmm. we will have here. They start not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday night on the 22nd, and I think there are like eight services between now and New Year's, Christmas Day, so a lot. Yeah, no, it's a lot, Yeah. It's a busy time. Well, I have this Harry Potter Advent calendar Where that someone gave me. Or something like that. I'm, I don't know. Someone who really knows that I love that book. I, I, I'm surprised <laughs> I these kids haven't broken it by now. Uh, right? Yeah. Well, we, we still have it out. We still use it. And I think it is intact entirely. So that's a that's good great. thing. But yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that came up on Sunday and that I think we're immersed in right now is the power and the use of stories as a way of connecting. Um, what, what do you, what, what's your sort of relationship to stories, storytelling um, that is both uh, biblical as well as personal? Well, um, two things popped to mind. I'm going um, to focus this Sunday 
back on the story of the woman at the well, which is a parable, mm -hmm. and I think a really uh, apt one, because we are in such need of having what Diana Butler Bass would call non-authoritarian non conversations between peoples of all kinds, whatever separates us. We need to do the work of breaking barriers and healing divisions. And I think stories are a wonderful way of doing that. Diana Butler Bass in her email that I got this morning is she's offering an email advent calendar so that every day you get mm -hmm. an email from her. And um, today she told the story about Phyllis Trickle. Phyllis Trickle died a few years ago. Phyllis Tickle died a few years ago. She was also, like Diana Butler Bass, an observer of the American religious scene and somebody who would kind of predict what was happening and what would be happening in, in religion. And a number of years ago, she predicted this great turning that we are in right now. Um, part of, I think, another axial age. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's terrifying in some ways, hopeful in another. But she told the story that Phyllis Tickle was giving a lecture to a huge group of people, like 500 people in the church. And uh, they got to the Q&A period, and it was Advent. And people in the congregation raised a question about whether they believed in the virgin birth or not. Was it literally true, or um, was it just a metaphor? And Phyllis mm -hmm. noticed that there was this like 17, 18 year old kid who was standing at the back of the auditorium up, up, up on the, of the sanctuary, up on one of the steps. He was one of the servers who would be serving the meal later. And um, mm. so the conversation got pretty tense and pretty heated among the people who felt one way about the virgin birth and somebody felt another way about virgin birth. And so they finally ended that. And afterwards, this young man came up to Phyllis and said, I really don't understand what all that conflict is about, about the virgin birth. I believe in the virgin birth because it's such a beautiful story, whether it ever happened or not. <laughs> Ah, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that's, yeah, that's the power of a really great story, yeah. right? Is that it can come to represent and symbolize so many things. I mean, even just as I think about the, the woman at the well, and um, I'm not sure why that had such a profound effect on me reading it from the perspective of a feminist liberation theologist in Africa, you know, where, so that story with a few details changed was contextualized to mean the exact same thing, liberation of the self, liberation of the soul, employing the deepest parts of the self in order to come to truth, to come to some sort of existence that is in community with others. Um, and I, I just, I think, you know, you, it's all, you know, you, it's sort of like the hero's journey, right? It's this beautiful frame, but you feel the details are gonna always change because it's so, individual and it's so um so per pertinent to one person's experience but the frame stays the same and i think that's the same about religious stories 
the frame stays the same, the details change. <laughs> what I hope in the work that we're doing is that in telling stories, particularly the stories that we're using based on the Gospel of John, is that we would ex we would help people experience a shift yeah. from having faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. what Jesus models through the stories that were created by, uh, by his followers is mm -hmm. um, a faith in the, the, the power of people to come together to em empower each other in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. And um, that's that's the work I think that we are about. And uh, of course, you know that I believe that what we're doing won't benefit anybody if we limit ourselves just to the conceptual. Right. We have to have a practice. Yes. Yeah. And to further that, even that practice that is so often um, individual time must then become translate into action in the world. How do we show up in the world? Right. So you, right. you go literally from the head to the feet um, in that space of taking in, contemplating, meditating, and then practicing with your feet. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, I sent you something the other day that, um, I felt so true in the moment of reading it and it's, did you know who Chris Hedges is? He's a, a Harvard university theologian at the divinity school. Yes. Um, yes, I do. He, yeah, he, he writes, and I know this is like a major jump from where we just were, but it just occurs to me that whenever we're taking something literally, then we miss the magic. We miss that opportunity to go from the head to the feet to really have a full experience of it. Um, and he writes, what I'm willing to do, which the mainstream church is not, is to denounce the Christian right as Christian heretics. You don't have to, as I did, spend three years at Harvard Divinity School to realize that Jesus didn't come to make us rich. And he certainly didn't come to make Pat Robertson and Joel Osteen rich. And what they have done is acculturate the worst aspects of American imperialism, capitalism, chauvinism, violence, and bigotry into the Christian religion. I think what he's really saying is that when we stop at this head place in this ego space, because if we stay in the head, we're going to be locked into the ego, then mm -hmm. we miss that full body experience of, of the liturgy. Yes. And it's because we don't know who we are. Yeah. Right. So I want to tell you about experience I, I completed as part of my own daily spiritual practice. And um, it's daunting. It's not something that, um, mm. it's something that if you decide to take up, you will become discouraged very quickly. Mm. Um, as you've heard me say a lot, that one of the major things that, having a meditation practice does is it teaches you humility because you realize how awful you are at it. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to do. 
and he run against all the judgments and comp internal competition that we have about everything. I had um, a conversation with Jim Finley about 11 years ago. I'd gone to a conference that the CAC put on about mysticism. And um, we were trying to read the writings, the sermons of Meister Eckhart. And I told Jim Finley, I can't do this. I, this is hard. I don't understand Meister Eckhart. <laughs> and he said, well, start with one of the commentaries about Eckhart and read that. And the one that he recommended was Cyprian Smith's book on the way of paradox. Mm -hmm. You've got that book. And I do. I'm yeah. thinking you've, you've read it. I've I read have. it. Now, four times. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I did what I'm about to describe to you is that after reading it for the third time and getting away from it, I realized I still don't get it. I mean, I somebody asked me what that book about, and I would say it's about paradox or, you know, whatever. <laughs> What's a paradox? So, it's kind of paradoxical. It's a paradox. <laughs> so, what, what Finley said was he recommended a couple of things by Eckhart, and then he recommended this book, and he said, this is the way that I recommend you read it. I learned this in the monastery. You read a paragraph, and then you write that paragraph in your own words. Mm -hmm. And then you read another paragraph and you write that paragraph in your own words. Mm -hmm. And then you read it. I went through, I have now gone through the entirety of the way of paradox that way. And I've written, oh, oh no, yeah. The so you did it with book. Cyprian Smith's book. Wow. I did it with Cyprian Smith's book. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and so I came it, out with my own. Yeah, that's what I want to ask. <laughs> what came out from that? Are you still processing what's come out from that? I under I I, I understand it better. I got it better. Yeah. I understand yeah. um, the paradox of going out by staying in, mm -hmm. and staying in by going out. And um, I was really really struck with the strong parallels between the teachings of Buddha and the teaching of Meister Eckhart. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. all are about, uh, you're not who you think you are. Yeah. And here from a, a, a 13th century mystic, you know, which is to say that wisdom is the eternal well, right? Wisdom yeah. is always present in every generation. And we have so many teachers we can call upon. And, and I, I was looking at um, uh, the ba Bhagavad Gita the other day, the ancient Hindu text. And that's one of the oldest known texts, religious texts. And it is about the same thing. Go mm -hmm. inside to find your light, bring your light into the world, <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it, and it, it just, I just, so I have, I don't know if you have this book of sermons of Meister Eckhart's, that's a translation, obviously. Do you have it on your Kindle or on your Apple books? What is it? It's just called Meister Eckhart sermons. <laughs> I've got uh, several of his sermon books 
Yeah. yeah. So okay. I'm, I'm assuming I have it. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't anyways, but just sort of flipping to it really quickly as he brought him up. It, yes. He's so much like the Buddha, like the, like Jesus, like, um, you know, all the wisdom teachers throughout. And I have this one, this page opened up when I opened up the sermons and it's the one I have highlighted. If thou really lovest thyself, thou lovest all men as thyself. As long as thou lovest anyone less than thyself, thou dost not really love thyself. That man is right who loves all men as himself. Where have we heard that one before? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's the heart. It's the heart of the first axial age. Yeah. And you know, Holly, one of the things that I noticed too about the writings of Meister Eckhart is that he wrote in a time of incredible social upheaval. The Gospel of John was written at a time of incredible social upheaval. Mm. We are living in a time of incredible social upheaval. I don't know if you've seen Christmas cards of the representatives and their families mm -mm. standing around Christmas trees <clears throat> holding guns. Oh, my. Yes. I have yeah, not. Yeah, there's circuit. They're circulating on um, Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Um, people with small children holding like a machine gun Ugh. in front of a Christmas tree. And this is their Christmas call. Yeah, that that brings. We live in we live in some really crazy times. And it makes me wonder two things. You just said, you know, the Gospel of John came up out of a space that was pretty tumultuous, that Meister Eckhart lived during a time of tumult. We live in this time. What great art, literature, pieces will come out of this time? Because there are amazing things being produced, especially poetry right now. I feel like it's having a kind of renaissance or resurgence. But the other thing that just makes me go right back to is the recent news event of the parents buying their 15-year-old a semi-automatic pistol who went to school and shot four kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like the massive disconnect for me. Who, what parent buys their 15-year-old a semi-automatic weapon? I, I can't even put those two in my mind together because it's so far from what how I see the world and yet it happens all the time. Back in the uh, late seventies or early eighties, Scott Peck, who is best known for his book, the way Roadless. the road less travel mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wrote a book called people of the lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that book begins with a story about a family where a young man, committed suicide with a 22 rifle. Mm. And they had another son, and for his birthday the next year, they gave him as a gift that rifle. Oh, my gosh. So mm. we have created structures mm -hmm. that allow people to deal with their anxiety, their need for control, 
their need for being uh, right and in power, we've, we've created a society that allows people to go to the worst, most destructive options yeah. to try to deal with those things. Yeah. And um, one of my daily prayers is that we as a country will wake up and develop the, the moral courage to deal with our psychosis that we as a society have about guns. Yeah. We have a diagnosable psychosis. We have a psychiatric condition as a country yeah. about weapons. Absolutely. About violence in general, I think. About violence. Yeah. That's one of the S. But particularly uh, about how that manifests in God. Absolutely. I'll, I'll send you, I'll, I'll find one of those Christmas cards and send it to you. You might want to replicate it for your family. Oh, great. It's your three boys, AK 47. Oh, it's already under the tree, Bill. <laughs> That's just what we need biracial boys running around with AK 47s. I am kidding. Let that go down on the record that I am just kidding. I am not doing that for my boys for Christmas. Um, I did the essay I read in the book by Wendell Berry, Our Only World, was about the commerce of violence. And it he is writing broadly about um, violence endemic to our country. And he, you know, every time that we reduce ourselves to violence, to death, to murder, to using guns to take another's life or our own, that the task of hope becomes harder, you know, and, and, and he's not wrong. You know, this kind of going back to what we sort of started with this sort of balance between hopelessness and hope. And um, I'm simultaneously arrested by both. Anyhow, yeah, I mean, it is. It, it is a diagnosable psychosis that we have. And certainly violence didn't start in America, but it is rearing its ugly head in so many ways. And personal commitments to violence seem so loud right now, like these senators or representatives with AK-47s in front of a Christmas tree. Those two things couldn't be more of an, an anathema, you know, like more of an opposite. All right. <laughs> All right. So the, I don't think you and I ever worked through uh, teaching um, Aaron Armstrong's 12 Step to a Compassionate Life. But that book is about how there was this time in human history where the violence was so out of control that that was one of the contributing factors to a great religious spiritual awakening. Mm. That's when Confucius and Buddha and the Hebrew prophets all came on the scene to talk about not doing to someone what you would not want done to yourself. And I think that we also have to create the context in which we stop seeing each other as enemies. Yeah. This is that radical, radical concept of Martin Buber's philosophy, right? It's a philosophy of kinship. It's a philosophy of, you know, the I thou of, and right back to what Meister Eckhart said in one of his sermons, thou canst love another if thou doesn't love thyself <laughs> and vice versa. Right. It just, and, and that fundamental tenet of all wise religions, we're still working on it. 
And maybe that's the hope that we're still working on it. Well, uh, my thought is, and I want to say it, though it sounds judgmental, is that some of us are working on it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we us. need more of us to work to yeah. work on it. You know, I would. I, I, this past Tuesday was the uh, 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. I was four years old mm. when Pearl Har- Harbor occurred. I am either blessed or cursed, depending on your point of view, with a memory that goes back to when I was at least two. I remember the Sunday afternoon when we got the news of Pearl Harbor. Isn't that so interesting? And I remember all the things that, not all the things, I've got selective memory like everybody, but I remember the things that happened after that. And um, they seem to me to be, and I know this is not, this didn't include everybody, but it, it seemed to me that there was a great communal coming together and everybody was encouraged to participate in the war effort because we were at war and we had to ration gas, we had to ration sugar, uh, there was no butter, um, during the hard times, not that we suffered, but we, um, we sacrificed a lot for what was called the common good mm-hmm. and to, to participate in the war effort. We have a great enemy that we need to fight in yeah. this country, and that's ignorance. Mm-hmm. And let's all join the war, war effort. Yeah. Um, because there's a huge conflict going on out there in the, in the culture, and it seems to be escalating and getting worse. Yeah. Well, it's a commitment to, it's almost like a, a conscious commitment to ignorance that, um, that is happening. And in what James Baldwin would call innocence, this sort of commitment to willful innocence. I am innocent of all of these terrible things. And so therefore I can look the other way. And that's, mm-hmm. that kind of complicity is almost what allows the ignorance to keep building is those of us who say I'm innocent of that crime, therefore I don't need to look at it. So there's this wide berth of people who aren't able to deal with the reality of the situation because they're not part of the, what is being perceived as like the bad behaviors. But I think you're right. you know, how much sugar will we have to ration and and use to combat this war? I mean, in, in some symbolic way, it is about (laughs) sugar you know using our sweetness and our kindness and our love to combat this war against violence and willful ignorance so we have work to do we've got work to do work to do Mm -hmm. well i I'm looking forward to, you'll be teaching by yourself this Sunday, <laughs> uh, a return to Bill, and I'm sure that will be welcome news, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it. Uh, I'm hoping that I can finish writing what I think I have to say by Sunday. Yeah. Uh, I don't I said, think the lack of words are your issue. Uh, well... <laughs> It's the lack of time, as I said. Things are, are, are things. 
in my other job here really pick up at this time of year. Yeah. So there are a lot of meetings and a lot of other things going on to attend to, but it will all get done in a timely manner. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see you in the in the class rather than beside me Sunday. So we'll see how that goes. All right. I'll you a little bit. Okay. (laughs) All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.